When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Heard Tell. Uh, we've made it to Wednesday, folks, April the 13th. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are, whether it's across the street or around the world. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome back to Herdtel, where we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, have some grown folk talk about the issues of the day, trying to discern our times as best we can. And we're going to do it without all the caterwauling that you find other places. We don't yell here. We talk. We actively listen. We delve into things. And we appreciate you joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time. A couple of things we're going to cover on the show today. Uh, we've been talking on and off for several months now, really, uh, over in the UK. Uh, Boris Johnson and his government has gotten in some trouble for breaking their own COVID lockdown rules. They have been uh, levied fined by the Metropolitan Police. That investigation has concluded. We'll touch on that story a little bit later on in the program. Also, uh, back here domestically, President Biden has some comments. Uh, he uses the word genocide in dealing with Ukraine and what Vladimir Putin is doing to the Ukrainian people. He also is blaming uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin's illegal war for driving up food and fuel prices. We'll deal with both of those comments, something we've been talking about a lot of on this program lately. We'll deal with both of those per- comments in just a little bit. Also, closing out the program today on our lighter-hearted note, uh, down in Australia, they got some lottery li- winners. Now, I'm famously not great at math, but I know you got to be careful with them decimal points. Got to be careful when you carry over zeros. And these folks down under needed to do that because they thought they'd won a $179,000 lottery prize. It was really $1.79 million. We'll cover that story in just a little bit. Also, great guest today, Avi Wolf, a friend of ours. Uh, he also is sometimes a contributor at Ordinary-Times.com, has written a wonderful piece that has gotten a lot of discussion, a lot of pushback. The piece is called Make the 1920s Again, a Superficially Appealing Story of the Republican Party. He's dealing with uh, some other writers who have suggested that what's going on in the Republican Party is a long, unbroken line and a return to what happened before World War II changed everything. Avi pushes back on that. It mixes politics and history, the history of the Republican Party. How much did Donald Trump really change it? These sort of things. Avi Wolf is our guest today on Good Talks. Make sure you don't miss that. But first, I want to talk about social media for just a second. We have um, several pieces 
out in the public sphere and you can read them. We're once again talking about social media. I get a little annoyed. I have openly wrote about, in fact, the piece that got me into writing and got me the first little bit of notice that led to things like doing radio and heard tell and podcasts and my writing career at ordinary-times.com was I wrote about social media being a good thing for me. I'd never had a social media account in my life until about four years ago. I got my Twitter account and that helped me open the world back up and got me involved in the broader world again after some really troubling stuff in my own life. I get really a little annoyed how we always talk about social media being bad. Yes, there's a lot of bad involved. Yes, it brings out the worst in people. But I think we forget and lose perspective on the good parts of social media. We have an amazing interconnectivity that no other generation in history has had. We have amazing ability to share information in real time. Think about all the different wars in history where the correspondents would have to send back. They would have to send back pictures. They would have to send back video. You would have to watch things on the news. Social media is driving the coverage of the war in Ukraine right now. You're getting things in real time with no filter without having to go through news agencies. Sometimes that's good and bad. Some of that stuff needs to be filtered. There's false propaganda out there. But think about the power and the information we have because of these social media platforms. Over and over again, I'm hearing more writers and more commentators and more political figures and elected officials talk about how awful social media is and we need to fix it. And it occurs to me that we're having the wrong conversation about social media. Social media is just a thing about people. All those accounts, those are all people. And more and more, it seems to me that we're just saying social media or Twitter or Facebook, and the same old people are trying to do the same old kind of regulating of human behavior, but now they can talk about Twitter or Facebook because that's more socially acceptable to hate on that and accuse them than different people groups or opponent groups. If I say, I want X group of people to not be able to say anything back to me, people recoil on that because they know that that is a problem with things like freedom of speech and fair play and living in a pluralistic society like America is. But we can say, boy, that social media is evil, that Twitter is evil, that Facebook's evil. Let me profit to you this way, as gently as I know how and in all good Christian love. Twitter never made you do anything. Facebook never made you do anything. Facebook's a tool. It's like a shovel. You can use it out in the backyard and dig sandbags and prevent a flood, or you can use it to bury the body of somebody that you should not have killed. The shovel doesn't care either which way. It's just a tool. And so is your social media use. Social media is what you make of it. It's a completely voluntary activity. It's not something that should control you. And if it does, it's not social media's fault. It's your fault. I think we're spending too much time putting all the blame and the onus on Twitter, on Facebook, and not that they don't deserve criticism from time to time. But at the core of it, you're the one smashing the send button. I'm the one deciding what is and isn't on my timeline. We follow who we want to. These are all decisions we make, and we keep wanting to pass the buck off on the technology when really what we're having is the same old age old conversations about regulating human behavior. And some people want to do just that. They want to regulate each other's behavior. Is that the proper role of government? Is that the proper role of regulation? That's an age-old question we've been fighting for generations. But let's not kid ourselves that it's the technology that's making everything worse. It might be making it louder. It might be making it more apparent. But all it's really doing is showing what we were all along. And we just don't like that. So we blame the platforms and blame the technology. Because it can't really be our fault, right?
more hard tell right after this. Well, by Hertel, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, two comments from President Biden related to the Ukraine and his policies towards it that we want to cover. Uh, the Washington Post, the president was out in Des Moines, Iowa. President Biden on Tuesday referred to Russia as committing, quote, genocide in Ukraine, a significant escalation of the president's rhetoric and a notable shift that comes as the U.S. officials have avoided using that term, which suggests an effort to wipe out all or part of a specific group. Biden's initial comments, this is from the Washington Post again, come at an event in Menlo, Iowa, where he was decrying the efforts of Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion of the Ukraine on higher prices Americans are paying for gas and food. Quote, your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank. None of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide half a world away, Biden said. He later told reporters he intentionally used the word genocide in his speech, though he added he wouldn't, quote, let the lawyers decide internationally whether or not it qualifies. But he said, quote, it sure seems that way to me. The United Nations defines genocide as an act committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. Biden suggested that it is exactly what Russia is doing as it commits atrocities in the Ukraine, including what evidence suggests was a slaughter of unarmed civilians in the town of Bucha. We've covered that before already on the program. The president described Russia's actions as going far beyond a military campaign and against an adversary, saying it was rather an organized effort to erase Ukraine's identity as an independent nation. Quote, it's become clear and clear that Putin is trying to wipe out the idea of being Ukrainian, Biden said. The evidence is mounting. It looks different than last week. More evidence is coming out literally of the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. Uh, I completely agree with the president on this particular point. Uh, let the lawyers sort it out later, some of these definitions. But yes, he is trying to wipe out what it means to be Ukrainian. How do we know this? We've said it over and over again on this program. We're going to continue to say it for the folks out in overflow that might not have fully understand it yet, or those of you from Logan. He said up front the night he launched this, quote, special operation, which was an illegal war of aggression to wipe out Ukraine and put it under Russian subjugation. He told us in plain language, Ukraine is not a real country. They're not a people with a culture. They don't have a history. They've always been Russian. He said this plainly, and that's how they've conducted themselves. And we've said it over and over again on this program. They're very happy to kill anybody who doesn't want to bow the knee and admit that they're Russian, not Ukrainian. Now, the Ukrainians have put up one hell of a fight, and they're not in danger of losing their entire country, although they're paying a fearsome price for it because the Russians, through their own ineptitude and through the bravery of the Ukrainian armed forces that are fighting back, they're not going to be able to take over Kiev and get the government and that sort of thing, at least right now. And that's a good thing. But the president's absolutely right. Let the lawyers and the criminal courts figure out the niceties later. But Vladimir Putin's trying to wipe Ukraine off the map, not in a way of making it go away, but in a way of saying that it's always been Russian. And we know that because he said it himself. Now, to the other part of what he said about prices being all Vladimir Putin's fault, we've also covered this before. It's very easy to make a line of demarcation. When Vladimir Putin started his illegal war in Ukraine, that shot up prices for gas and it's going to shoot up prices for food because it's going to create shortages worldwide. And we all understand how the supply chain works. We just got a two-year education on that. But everything before that still falls on President Biden. Prices were already going up. Now, not all inflation is President Biden's fault. But when you're president, you get the credit and you get the blame. Gas prices went up because he campaigned on a 
promises of cutting fossil fuels. We've already covered that. So gas prices were already naturally going up. Food costs were going up. Inflation's going up. Not all of it's his fault, but he's got to take his portion of the blame as well. It's not all on Vladimir Putin, Mr. President. You're in the chair. You get the credit. You get the blame. You wanted that big chair for a long, long time. This is the gig. Enjoy it and embrace it and stop trying to duck every little thing when you are the president of the United States. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, I'm excited about this one. We've been meaning to have him on for a while. Very talented writer, a uh, good friend of ours for a while. Also an occasional contributor to Ordinary-Times.com, but he's written in a lot of prestigious places. Go check him out. Also has his own podcast, Obvious Conversational Corner, which I have been blessed to be on a couple different times. But we're going to be talking about something he wrote today. Avi Wolf, our friend over in Israel. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. You wrote a great piece in Ordinary-Times.com, and I just want to dig into it because it's a lot of history. It's a lot of current events. I, I want to phrase it this way, though. We seem to be having this perpetual conversation about what is and isn't the Republican Party, especially post-Trump, because uh, let's just be honest, Trump kind of blew up a lot of people's priors over what the Republican Party was. We're two years post-Trump now, give or take a little bit with an election year. When you sat down to do a historical review of the Republican Party and we're looking back on the Trump years, where do you think we are right this second? Because if we're going to go back and review, we got to know where we wound up right this moment. So where are we? Where are we? The thing, the thing about uh, talking about uh, historical events is that even when we talk about historical events that are similar, they're never entirely exactly the same. So some people say we're like the some people have said we're back to the Republican Party of Richard Nixon. Some people have said we're like the Republican Party. Uh, of Reagan as properly understood. Uh, and one uh, major histo uh, historian of the right, uh, Matthew Continetti, who's come out with a book, uh, I forget the title, which I'd like to read eventually, uh, published in a piece saying that the Republican Party is basically disavowing everything it's done since 1932 and is going back to the policy of the Republican Party uh, of the 1920s, of Warren G. Harding, of Calvin Coolidge, uh, and of Herbert Hoover, basically one based on very high uh, trade barriers, uh, lower immigration, uh, less involvement in the world. Um, and I read that and I thought, you know, that sounds superficially appealing. Uh, as I noted in the piece, uh, Warren Harding and Donald Trump were both people who cheated on their wives repeatedly. Uh, they were both brought in on a wave of deep discontent uh, from uh, constant attempts uh, to busybody the nation, uh, then it was progressives, now it's a different kind of progressive. Um, and they dominated politics for the, 1920, uh, for the whole decade, and they say, well, now Trump has remade the party. And I took a look at the details, and the truth is, is that it's not quite that simple, that there are more continuities uh, from 1920s through the post-World War II era uh, to today than you might think. Yeah, let's go back to the 20s, because this is an area of history that you use the term superficial. I think people have a superficial understanding of the 20s, the roaring 20s, the jazz age, um, coming off the Gilded Age. We, we have a lot of buzzwords for this, but we haven't done a whole lot of study in this area for a lot of folks. Throughout your piece, you keep talking about outside events that affect the politics. So let's set the stage for the 20s when we get into Warren G. Harding here. We're in post-World War I. America's had its first global war involvement. The economy's good. It's ripping. It's roaring. Um, set the stage for us because 
you know, Harding didn't just have these policies, you know, in a vacuum. There was a sequence of events that caused him to have these policies, right? Right. So the first the first world war is one of those events that had an enormous uh, direct and indirect impact on the United States, but we've all forgotten about it because everybody remembers the bigger war, that's World War II. But at the time, it was enormous. Um, you had, need to come, keep in mind, Harding voted to go to war in World War I because there was a national consensus that German, uh, German submarines sinking American ships was just a causes failure. The problem was, was that Wilson then, after the war was over, tried to force uh, a peace treaty that even people who liked the peace treaty uh, weren't very enthusiastic about because it sounded like it overcommitted the United States to be diplomatically and maybe even militarily involved all over the world. Sound familiar? Um, and eventually the treaty was rejected, not by people who necessarily didn't want America to be involved in the world, but for people who wanted America to have a freer hand. And if we get to talk about Trumpian foreign policy, sound familiar? Um, so what Warren G. Harding, um, you need to keep in mind, he was not the Republican Party's first choice. The first choice of the Republican Party in 1920 uh, was probably Theodore Roosevelt, who was still alive in 1918. Um, and he, had he won, right, the Republican Party may still have dominated, but it still would have taken a very different turn because Theodore Roosevelt was very big on a muscular foreign policy. He was, very, he was actually quite left-wing for the time. So my, my point is that while it's true that the 1920s ushered in an, an era of American dominance, luck played a part in the story of Harding and his people taking over as opposed to the Rooseveltians. And Roosevelt's actually, our current usage of the word progressive comes from the Teddy Roosevelt era. Now it's obviously changed and manipulated a little bit, but that loud, boisterous, full-throated use of government to get things done, that really is the genesis of the term as we currently use it. Now I know we have more of a leftist connotation to it now as opposed to the bull moose stuff that he did later on, but it is important to note that Although there's differences, you know, history does rhyme. There's a lot of threads in this stuff, even going all the way back to the 20s, that runs directly to today if we tr pull them out far enough, right? Definitely. Um, and by the way, it's not just um, it's not just a question of uh, Harding uh, wanting to pull out from the world. If you take an example from Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover, um, he's an interesting uh, middle ground between uh, Harding and Coolidge saying, being very standoffish and saying, if I don't have the authority, I don't want to do it. And even if I have the authority, I'm not so sure I want to do it. Hoover was the kind of guy who would convene uh, business uh, business leaders, uh, especially after the Depression started, to try and coordinate uh, wages and uh, and prices to to try and sort of in the middle between not intervening at all and this is the president. I'm imposing a regulation. Better do what I say. Uh, and again, sound familiar? One of the things Donald Trump did a lot, and a lot of uh, Republican presidents also did. Uh, was to try and find that middle ground of the president as a source of influence, but not in position. And talking to our friend, Avi Wolf, great writer, good commentator, friend of ours for quite a while. Uh, while we're still in this era, though, we just anytime you talk about Herbert Hoover, you got to get the elephant in the room out of the way. He's the guy that the Great Depression got hung on his head. And we know how the presidency works. You get all the blame, all the credit. He's in the seat when it all went wrong after the roaring 20s we were talking about. That had to have it killed his his presidency pretty much dead where it stood. But policy wise for Republicans and Democrats, and of course, this ushered in, you know, the uh, block of time that uh, FDR took over. This had to greatly affect policy going forward, even though it would be a good 14, 15 years before Republicans got the White House back. 
the lessons of Herbert Hoover and more importantly, the stuff he got blamed for, I would think had to greatly affect policy going forward. It did. It did. Although, uh, although the, obviously, as we know, the Republicans did not win back the White House until 1952, uh, major leaders of the new Republican Party, I guess I would call it, the people who bounced back after the Republican Party went from being a small minority in Congress to something reasonable, uh, people like Robert Taft, uh, people like the governor of New York, uh, Thomas Dewey, they were of the mind that there are certain bare minimum things that FDR did. Uh, such as Social Security, workman's compensation, a certain degree of restriction uh, of business that A, are just so incredibly popular that there's no way they're going to remove it. And B, is not necessarily bad because it's enacted in law as opposed to an executive which can just regulate uh, freely. So that was that's basically the, um, I guess I would call it the unspoken consensus on among the Republican Party, even if not among ideologues and people who write, uh, who write uh, policy papers, is that we don't like high taxes and we don't like regulations that are not uh, voted on by Congress, even by Congress, but at least Congress can repeal it. But we don't like it when we have an understanding executives. But a bare minimum, uh, a safety net uh, of, 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 of core entitlements and of core protections that we support. And there's a reason why um, uh, Barry Goldwater, when he was when he was nominated uh, to try and run for the presidency in 1964, and he basically advocated junking all that, um, he was crushed so absolutely thoroughly. It wasn't because everybody who voted for LBJ was all very big government, but they thought that he went way too far the other way. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, uh, if we're talking about uh, Continetti said, you know, uh, Trump's returning to the to, to the to the 1920s uh, when the dominant position was isolationist, didn't want to get involved in the world, and uh, the same thing was true with Robert Taft. That's true. Robert Taft, I wouldn't call him an isolationist, but it was definitely very cautious. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Republican Party did not nominate Taft uh, before or during World War II to run for the presidency. They nominated Wendell Wilkie, and then they nominated Thomas Dewey, both of whom were internationalists. So uh, we need to understand that the Republican Party has never, we talk about wings nowadays, and people said, oh, once, once upon a time, the Republican Party was once this great monolith. It never was. There were always wings. There were always different groups. And sometimes one group is more powerful than the other. And sometimes the other group will be more powerful than the other. Uh, but that's the more complicated contingent story of the Republican Party uh, under FDR. Yeah, talking to our friend Avi Wolf. Uh, let's let's take two extremes of the Republican Party then, because I got to think if you're going to talk to Republican presidents personality wise, can you get more different than Calvin Coolidge and Donald Trump? I mean, of course, the nickname doesn't completely play up to the standard because he, it, it's not that he, people think he was a mute or something. That wasn't that the case. Silent, silent Cal, Calvin Coolidge, a very religious man, a very dignified man. The way he carried himself, uh, the way he governed, frankly, was very restrained. Uh, they're both Republicans, but boy, that's got to be two ends of the spectrum, don't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's two ends of the spectrum uh, in terms of a, a number of things. First of all, obviously, in terms of personality. Uh, second of all, uh, while both pushed forward tax cuts, uh, uh, Coolidge was the kind of guy who, even if he didn't like someone, somebody doing something privately, uh, he, he wouldn't uh, be the kind of person to impose it. Um, but but Coolidge is, is yet another example of of Continetti reading too much backwards. He said that um, 
the concept of the Republican Party being about religious piety is, is 1920s, and then they gave it up. And I read that, and I was stunned. Like, does nobody remember the presidency of George W. Bush, how everybody said that he's going to impose a theocracy? And how uh, uh, and how all of us uh, and how all of a sudden it's going to be under Christian nationalism. Uh, if anything, uh, if anything, uh, Trump was much more uh, laid back about that issue. But you're definitely right that they're both Republicans. It's a sign of different groups of Republicans. Sometimes one group takes over, and sometimes another group takes over. It's not it's not a massive historical sea change. Yeah, talking to our friend Avi Wolf. We're going to take a quick break. Hertel comes back. We're going to continue to talk about this. Uh, thread of history in the Republican Party, what does match up, what doesn't, how we got here from there. Uh, more with our friend Avi Wolf, his excellent piece that's out in Ordinary Times, Make the 1920s Great Again, a Superficially Appealing Story of the Republican Party. Great title, my friend. We'll be back with Avi Wolf right after this. Yeah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Still talking to our friend Avi Wolf about his excellent piece that's in ordinary-times.com. Read it, discuss it with the best commentary section on the internet. Make sure you share it. This is a great piece that's going to make folks think. A lot of history in it, the way we like to cover things. Uh, we talked about foreign policy and interventionalism. And of course, we know America has always had these, they has these moods from time to time about interventionalism. But what about non-war foreign policy, uh, especially post-World War II? Uh, Eisenhower comes to power. The Republicans finally have the White House back after a long break. And we understand he you got to call him an internationalist in some regard because he was the great general of World War II. He had a lot on his plate. He has the start of the Cold War. He has Korea. Uh, There's a lot going on in the world besides just military intervention. How did the foreign policy of the Republican Party start to change and start to shape what we now call the post-World War II consensus? Okay, so. uh Dwight Eisenhower's winning not only of the election in 1952, but of the Republican nomination in 1952 was incredibly important, uh, not just for America, but for the world, because he beat out Robert Taft, who, as I said, was not quite isolationist, but was incredibly skeptical uh, of NATO and of any kind of uh, what uh, George Washington would call entangling alliances. Uh, Ike believed that after two world wars, either there was really nobody else with the economic, demographic, uh, industrial power to keep the peace in the world. And that if they did not impose it to varying degrees, this is going to happen again. Um, And so he wins the nomination and he wins the presidency. But here's the thing. Um, There's a tendency nowadays, because we all in living memory, most of us mostly remember the George W. Bush administration, we tend to think, well, Republicans were always these gung-ho, always go to war types. As we just noted, before World War II and during World War II, they really weren't. But even after World War II, they tended to be generally fairly cautious. Uh, Eisenhower rarely directly uh, endangered uh, American troops, only for very specific purposes. Um, uh, for those for those of you listeners uh, who are old enough to remember, Richard Nixon also ran on and had a policy of trying as much as possible to work indirectly through allies. Uh, against communist aggression rather than uh, rather than endangering American troops as much as, say, Lyndon Johnson had done. And even Ronald Reagan, who everybody remembers for his soaring, bellicose rhetoric about communism, was nevertheless very careful about um, getting American troops directly involved. He believed in projecting American power through all sorts of indirect means. And by the way, 
Um, people remember the 1920s as an isolationist time. It's not entirely true. It's true that they didn't want to get involved militarily, but uh, Warren Harding and especially Coolidge's administration were actually very big on using American finance to try and rebuild the, sh the, the world of Europe shattered uh, through for the First World War through American credit and banking so that the, these, these events ha happen again. So there's a real, it wouldn't happen again. So there's a real, um, there's a real disconnect between our memory of that era and how Republicans actually function. This idea that, uh, this is why I say that this idea that Trump is this new idea of not getting involved, not endangering American troops is, is, is a break with the post-World War II consensus. If anything, it's a much more exaggerated, much more bombastic thing that nevertheless, in terms of actual policy, Dwight Eisenhower wouldn't necessarily have, uh, have been so shocked at it. Yeah. And you mentioned using all that money, all that foreign aid, things like the Marshall Plan, which was, you know, I, I don't even want to know what in today's dollars that would have cost uh, with the markups and the contractors and everything else. But the reason they could do that is because of the absolute, you know, once in a millennium economic boom that was actual after World War Two. This this is part of the Republican Party's been a little bit all over the place on their economic policy, though, because let's go back to the 20s again. You had massive tariffs in the 20s, which eventually would cause part of the Great Depression issues. That part was on them and on their blame. But then you have the post-World War II era. Then you have all the way up to today with Trump and his tariffs. The, the Republican Party's had a wide spectrum, and they tend to bounce back and forth on the ends of it when it comes to things like trade and commerce, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think part of it is that um, we live in new times. We live, we live in times where... Um, in the 1920s, if I recall the statistics correctly, something like 40% of Americans were employed in manufacturing in one way or another. Today, the number employed in services is far higher. Uh, the type of economies uh, is different. Uh, even manufacturing is different with all different kinds of technology and the skills required to work there. Um, so I honestly think that both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, if you pay attention to what they're doing, they're foundering around, I think, for a solution for a new for a new situation that a lot of us that we're not going to admit it maybe but a lot of us are not really sure what to do the 1920s solutions of the republicans was basically the same old same old uh, high tariff uh, barrier system that they had in the gilded age it was using an old uh, an old solution for uh, for a new problem and it worked for the 1920s but then the 1930s came and they needed new things and i think the republican party being all over the place and democrats being all over the place it's not necessarily because they're all they're all uh, they're all hypocritical or speaking out out of both sides of their mouth, but because we genuinely aren't sure, we genuinely aren't sure what the best ideas are, what can be done and what can't be done. Yeah, and along those same lines, something else that they're having that same argument over: uh, government regulation, the power of government. Um, we go all the way from you know the the traditional Reagan Republicans of you know big government is evil and we need to limit it as much as possible to now we have the national conservatives which are we need to have big government to give me everything I want uh, regulation and how you actually handle the government once in power is another of those same things those same lines it seems to be the eternal argument doesn't it Yeah absolutely uh, and really it goes far far more back into the U.S. history you could argue it even started with Alexander Hamilton's idea of a national bank. Uh, with some people thinking that, you know, that's an unelected body that manipulates the American economy too much. But absolutely, uh, the question of what to do and how to do it uh, and how to oversee it. Uh, one of the uh, real weaknesses, I think, that happens on the right, and uh, this is a, a great article by Lyman Stone, 
uh, in the Federalist about this, um, is that because the right is so suspicious of government, because they keep talking about all the bad things government does, and there are cases where government does bad things, they, they, they really don't train their best or even train people enough at all to be senior bureaucrats because where if you, at the end of the day, uh, until like there's some great upsurge among the American people saying, you know what, we want to limit the, their bureaucracy back to Jacksonian levels or whatever it is, the bureaucracy is going to be there. So someone needs to tame it. And the people who need to tame it are not just like the people at the very top, the cabinet, uh, uh, the cabinet secretaries, but you need people who are skilled administrators who can tell people lower down the food chain, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Um, but that requires saying that requires having a more nuanced approach to government saying, look, we'd love to be able to have absolute limited government right now. That's not happening. So instead of just sitting in the mud and waiting for it all to, you know, waiting for uh, waiting for it all to go away, why don't we train people so that we can restrain it as much as possible? As Ronald Reagan himself said, uh, personnel is policy. I think that's a healthier approach rather than waiting for a perfect utopia. Yeah, talking to our buddy Avi Wolf. Okay, let's let's bring this up into the modern day a little bit. Uh, go read his full piece, though. He lays this out in a lot more detail. But let's let's bring this up to the modern day because the current paradigm, the way you put it, is two two Bushes and a Reagan. Uh, of course, H.W. was Reagan's vice president, so he was kind of seen as a continuation. Is it even fair to lump W.N. with his dad and Reagan, though, because, and you pointed out in the piece, uh, these policies don't happen in vacuums. If you go back, and I did because I read your piece and I, I kind of it kind of caught my attention. So I went back and looked at what W. actually campaigned on prior, because all we think of is post 9-11 Bush. 9-11 really changed who Bush was. It changed his policies. It changed his outlook. So if you're going to say the Republican Party is this, that, or the other, and it's all one long, unbroken line, there's a clear paradigm shift from his father, from Reagan, from conservative, the conservative uh, party and the Republican Party of the late 90s, which was basically anti-Clinton in ways that we're not going to detail here because it's messy and ugly. And I prefer to forget about it, frankly. Um, w has got to kind of be the paradigm break for the modern Republican Party in a lot of ways and the way that Trump and the Trumpism and whatever you want to call it is a reaction to the years of the Bush stuff, right? Yeah, I think there's I think there's definitely a lot to that. It it points, as I said, to the importance of contingency. Events matter. If God forbid a foreign country had attacked the United States on the same scale as 9-11 in the 1920s, I assure you that most most hardened isolationists would say we need to, you know, attack and counterattack. And I think that I, I really do think that without 9-11, W might have changed. They may have become more hawkish, but I don't think he would have transformed himself in that way. And I think the same would have happened if it was a Democrat, Democratic president in office, too. And and it's true that, that Trump is kind of a reaction to it in much the same way that Harding was a reaction to the progressive era of, uh, of, Roosevelt, uh, of Roosevelt and Wilson. But that just goes to what I'm saying is that these clean transformations, these clean, neat, schematic ideas are just, they're too neat. They're, they're, they're not, they don't take enough into account how, how messy and how chaotic and how much luck plays into politics. And you're right. Uh, Trump is a reaction, but it's not an unfamiliar reaction. Yeah. Avi Wolf talking about his great writing in ordinary-times.com. Make sure you check it out. Uh, let's put a bow on this in this way. Um, you ended your piece talking about the voters because we do live in a representative democracy in the United States of America. 
ultimately the voters decide this stuff. But what's the limits on that? Because <laughs> we we had Donald Trump got elected and everybody goes, well, obviously the voters want this. But then he turns around as a one termer to, you know, Joe Biden and they can turn around and say it again. Well, like, obviously the voters want this. What's the limits to that last word in democracy, as you phrased it, with the voters? And how do we put that into the historical perspective where we have that spectrum and it's moving around inside the spectrum, but we're trying to keep perspective on everything? Uh, well, I would start by an obvious comparison to 1920s. When, we, when, when Warren Harding won in 1920, it was perhaps one of the, if not the biggest blowout the Republican Party ever got in Congress. The numbers in the House and the Senate that they got are simply unreal. Your eyes will pop out. When Donald Trump won the election in 2016, he did not have anything close to that kind of a majority. And that matters because one of the things that the, you know, we can debate what's good and bad about the founders, but one of the most important things that the founders did was place very high thresholds for changing things seriously, especially in terms of constitutional amendments. And despite Donald Trump winning uh, uh, winning the presidency and winning United Government. A, he, lo uh, a, he lost the House th in two years, right? So obviously the voters wanted something else very quickly. Uh, and B, he didn't have the kind of majority where he could remake the country. Uh, and that was, and that was, and the fact that the House, Senate, and uh, presidency kind of checked each other, that's part of the genius of the American system and that it's not a one-house parliamentary system where someone wins a temporary majority and oops, they can change everything. So I think that um, the voters have a say, but you don't get thorough, lasting, permanent change unless you have something like what the Republican Party had in the 1920s or what FDR had in the 1930s. In other words, sustained, regular majorities where the people overwhelmingly say over and over and over again, we want S. In Donald Trump's case, they said no. And so the so whatever damage uh, Donald Trump uh, may or may not have wanted to do, um, in addition to his advisors and managing to get him uh, out of uh, particularly dangerous spots, um, was, was checked by the voters themselves. In other words, the fact that there's a fixed election, a, a presidential election, midterm election for both houses each time, and the fact that there's so many different ways to check it, and the fact that the, the threshold for a majority, for a national consensus is so high, I think that... People don't appreciate how important that is. That is not in many other countries. Yeah, it's uh, scary that we're just the only thing between us and destruction is gridlock. But thus it is. Uh, our buddy Avi Wolf. It's an excellent piece. Ordinary-Times.com. It's the kind of stuff we love to run and debate and discuss and push back on and hash it out, as we say. Make the 20s great again. A specifically appealing story. Superficially, excuse me. A superficially appealing story of the Republican Party by Avi Wolf. Uh, let folks know where you're writing. Let them know about your podcast. Let them know about your social media. So until we get you back on again, they can keep up with you, my friend. Okay, so I can be followed at A-V-I-W-O-O-L-F. Uh, I write for many, many places. You can find me, uh, you can find me in, uh, uh, on Google or on my, uh, in my Twitter bio. You can find a list of most of the articles I've written. Um, and I podcast at Avi's Conversational Corner, uh, nowadays focusing mostly on the trials and travails of Americans in the Gilded Age, uh, for better or worse. Yep, and uh, he recently had an episode with uh, our buddy Bob from Glenville State College, which is the Division II Women's National Basketball Championship. I just wanted to throw that out there because uh, my daughter just got accepted to Glenville State. She'll be going to school there this fall. My parents are both alumni there. That's a great episode, and check that out. Uh, a lot of good stuff on his podcast, including a couple with me on it. 
So make sure you check those out. Avi, I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk again soon. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thanks for sticking with us. Let's update a story that we've been covering for quite some time. Let's go back over to the UK. Our friends over in England, uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and a bunch of other folks have been fined by the police. Uh, we've covered this story on and off. We've talked to our great UK Young Voices contributors about this. Long story short, during the lockdowns, uh, came to find out that while most of the normal folks in the UK were locked down, uh, Boris Johnson and some of his cabinet members and officials were partying it up, including in number 10, that's uh, Downing Street, that's their version of the White House, and in official offices and other places, including uh, during the funeral, the state funeral for Prince Philip, and at other times, this is obviously a very bad look, it got referred out uh, to the Met, the Metropolitan Police, that investigation is concluded. Uh, let's go to the BBC.com. Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, that's the chancellor, have pledged to stay in their post despite being fined by police for breaking lockdown rules in Downing Street in June of 2020. The prime minister, the chancellor, and the prime minister's wife all received fixed penalty notices for attending a birthday gathering for the prime minister in number 10. As a result, Mr. Johnson became the UK's first serving prime minister to be sanctioned for breaking the law. All three apologized, but both the PM and Mr. Sunak rejected calls to resign. Mr. Johnson said he felt, this is a direct quote, an even greater sense of obligation to deliver on the priorities of the British people, while the chancellor said he was, quote, focused on delivering for the British people. The fines come as part of an investigation by the Metropolitan Police into illegal parties held in Downing Street and across Whitehall, that's uh, the major government building, during COVID lockdowns in 2020 and 2021, the force is looking into 12 parties overall and has already issued more than 50 fines with more expected to come. Speaking on Tuesday, the prime minister said he, quote, in all sincerity, that people had the right to expect better from him. He claimed the event what he was fined for attending, which was a gathering in the cabinet room to mark his birthday, was, quote, brief and, quote, lasted less than 10 minutes. He added, this is a quote from Boris Johnson now, in all frankness, at that time, it did not occur to me that this might have been a breach of the rules, but of course, the police investigation has found otherwise, and I fully respect the outcome of their investigation. Spokesperson for the Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Johnson, said she accepted the police's findings and apologizes unreservedly. Mr. Sunak later released a statement saying, this is a quote, I understand that for figures in public office, the rules must be applied stringently in order to maintain public office. I respect the decision that has been made and have paid the fine, but the full and unreserved apologies do not silence the critics of the prime minister and the chancellor. Uh, you can read more on the piece at the BBC. It gets into the politics. Obviously, these are uh, conservative party, the Tory party office holders. So everybody else wants a piece of them for that. Now, what does this all mean? Uh, the universal thing, even though the UK system is very different than ours, is you have one set of rules for everybody else and one set of rules for those in power. Now we know in reality, we're all adults. Those in power don't live by the same set of rules, but you can't rub it in people's faces. You can't be having parties during lockdowns. You can't have birthday parties and live it up and drink it up on the job on the taxpayer's dime while people are not allowed to attend the funerals of their loved ones or while the queen sits alone 
because of social distancing rules at her husband's funeral. It's a horrible look, and it's just not going to be good enough for hardly anybody. Now, when the scandal originally broke, there was a lot of calls wondering Boris Johnson would survive it or not. He did survive it. He seemed to bounce back quite a bit with some of the stuff going on with Ukraine and his leadership of Ukraine. He had that great optic uh, a couple of days ago where he was walking the streets of Kiev with uh, Vladimir Zelensky. He has the ability to do leadership. He also has the ability to stick his foot way, way, way into his mouth. This is another one of those instances. Boris Johnson's a fascinating public figure. He gets compared in Western media to uh, Donald Trump a lot. I don't think that's fair. They're very different in a lot of ways, uh, even though they are similar in having highly suspect hairstyles and can be rather bombastic and loud. They're very different. Uh, Boris has a very interesting style. He has a very different background than Donald Trump. And this is where it kind of shows. He's a little bit more slippery. He's a little bit more slick. He knows how to pick his spots. So is he going to survive it this time? The same scandal now that it's broke out again. I don't know. I suspect he will. As we've talked to our UK contributors before, they don't have anybody to really challenge him in leadership. That will be a big part of this calculus, and we will see what happens. But we've been covering the story. We wanted to update it. The fines have came down from the Metropolitan Police. The sitting prime minister of the United Kingdom has been fined for wrongdoing. What an amazing time to be alive. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we try to end on a little bit of a lighter note after all these heavy topics we talk about. So let's go to UPI, United Press International. Go down under Australia, Kilkenny, Australia, to be specific. An unidentified couple from Kilkenny, Australia. Thought they had won $179,000 from a lottery drawing and were shocked to discover that they actually earned $1.79 million. The couple took part in the Saturday X lotto draw and were one of three in- winning entries who each obtained $1,799,494.97. Australian, of course. Lottery officials from the lot contacted the pair to confirm their win and spoke to the winning woman of the couple. At first, this is a quote, I thought we'd won 179000 not $1.79 million. I couldn't believe it when I realized it was a million-dollar prize. I was elated. There was a lot of screaming once it started to sink in. The woman said she spent the night deciding what to do with the money with her partner. We decided we'll buy a new house and save the rest for our future retirements, which hopefully will be something we can do a lot earlier than we planned. It was the most lovely surprise. We're just soaking it all in now. Thank you so much. The couple also noted they will celebrate by buying a nice bottle of champagne or wine. The winning numbers in the drawing were 9, 1, 40, 31, 35, and 8, with 38 and 15 as the supplementary numbers. An unidentified man, man from Australia recently won $1.25 million from a lottery ticket that he'd kept in his wallet for over two weeks. Moral of the story, whether you're down under, up yonder, across the street, or around the world. It's very important to make sure you carry your zeros over. Make sure you know where you're putting your decimal places. Math's hard. We're not good at that. Apparently, these folks aren't either, but it worked out. And it's a big, big difference when you move that decimal place over one spot on your lottery winnings. I'll do it for Hertel. We hope you will continue to stay with us as we continue to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, bring you good information so we can discern the times that we live in. Best way to do that. Make sure you're subscribed, whether it's on the YouTube channel, which is the best place to find all of our content, including video, 
or any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're on there. Find us, subscribe. You can subscribe on more than one for that matter. If you use multiple platforms, that's fine too. Nobody's going to say a word to you about it. And make sure you keep up to date with us. That way you don't miss anything. Uh, every morning, heard tell new episodes. Uh, every afternoon, the good talks, uh, breakouts of the interview segments. You'll get the twice on Sunday show. That's a recap of the interviews from the week that was. We'll also have the in-depth podcast that we do. There's over 36 of those deep diving topics. We got more of those coming working on some interesting topics that deserve a little bit more attention than we can give them in a segment on a regular Herd Tell episode. If you're subscribed, you'll never miss any of it. It'll go right into your inbox all the time. Also, we have those playlists on the YouTube channel. You can watch that. Also, our partners, Big Talker Network, you can use their Facebook stream. If you're to watch it there, all the videos are archived on Facebook. And if you want to share us on Facebook, that's a great way to do it off the Big Talker Network. Just type in Big Talker Network. It'll come right up for you. So until we talk to you again, whenever that is, hopefully it's tomorrow or whenever you are listening and downloading these episodes, we hope that you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We look forward to talking to you again next time on Hurtel. Take care. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.